Cognitive Evolution. I'm Cody Commerce, and this is my show about the personal side of the intellectual journey. Well, if you are a regular listener to the show, you will know that for the new year, the sort of main thing that I've been working on, that I've been struggling with, is that I hit a, uh, a sort of down portion of my PhD, and I had a major milestone, um, which is essentially like the halfway point, um, and I just didn't do well on it. I failed it, and I'm going to have to redo it. I've been working back um, uh, um, from that over the past month, and honestly, it's going quite well. It was just the kind of kick in the ass that I needed to get myself back on track with with research, and I really have used it as an opportunity to to, to do better uh, in a way that I really honestly needed to. That I was I was making excuses for myself, and, and I'm very thankful for that. Um, and uh, so I think that's good news. And I think it also raises a question. Well, what, you know, what, what did you have going on that led you to, you know, essentially neglect your, your duties as a PhD student? And uh, I think a, a, there's a number of answers to that question worth giving. But one of them is that I love to do random shit that has nothing to do with my PhD. For example, this podcast. Um, but another is that, uh, as it turns out, the only real class that I've had to take for my PhD um, has nothing to do with psychology at all, has nothing to do with anything that will bring me academic success, but is actually Georgian language. Um, and, oh God, it's <laughs> it's a long story exactly how I got there, um, but suffice to say, yeah, it is, it is uh, as far as random things to do during your PhD goes, that's pretty, pretty high up there. Um, I, part of it, so part of it actually comes from a general affinity for obscure, one might even say somewhat useless languages, as in there's no sort of obvious path to utility for me uh, learning Georgian language. And I sort of love the idea of, 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 of learning languages that there's no conceivable reason why you would need. Because, you know, everyone's out there like, oh, I'm going to learn German, I'm going to learn Mandarin. I'm going to do things that have obvious positive impact on my ability to, you know, land a job or this or that. Um, and I think, well, what is the most random, most lacking utility language that I can find? Let's get into that. And actually, it turns out that Georgian itself uh, is really interesting, uh, sort of as a as a language and as, as a concept. I mean, so as a language, it's totally etymologically isolated. Um, it basically, it has a ton of loan words, uh, but it doesn't have any roots of, of the, the sort of core language itself that's, that, you know, having studied other languages would, would, would be of use. So that's pretty interesting to dive into something like that. And that, But the, the, the best thing about it, oh my God, the best thing about it is that it has, in my opinion, the world's most aesthetically pleasing script. If you're not familiar with what it looks like, you can just, you know, Google it. But it's got the most delightful little curls and angles and that was the first thing that drew me to the language. It was it was a few years ago, actually. It was probably around oh 2016 that I first like, oh, that's huh, what's that? Um, and from there, there's just been little snippets that have sort of introduced me to it. Like uh, it turns out that Georgia has fucking amazing food. So Georgia is situated sort of at the nexus of Russia to the north, Turkey to the west. Iran to the sort of southeast. And basically, because of its place in, in world history, Georgia over time sort of took the confluence of all of those different amazing culinary empires. Uh, Russian food, actually, by the way, is very good. Um, but of course, so are Turkish and Persian food. And just sort of made this completely unique blend of world cuisines that is more than the sum of its parts. Um, it's, it's also one of the world's sort of oldest wine producing regions and they have a very venerable viticultural tradition. So there's actually a ton of interesting stuff uh, about the, the country and the language. And at the end of the day, I think the reason that I like learning, you know, 
quote unquote useless languages is that for pretty much everything in our life, we are relating to things in part, in large part, because they can do something for us. And when we interact with someone, it's because there's some sort of symbiotic relationship where we, you know, they exert some sort of influence on our life uh, and whatever. And there's so few opportunities for us to really meaningfully connect with someone that we have no legitimate impetus for connecting with. Uh, There is such a big world out there. Only a very small portion of it really exerts any sort of meaningful impact on one's own life. And that's the part that we tend to, to pay attention to, and rightly so. But there's something about trying to develop a meaningful connection with a, a place, a culture, a language, all that, a, a people that one has no necessary reason to do so. And one doesn't necessarily expect anything in return and, and one's not obligated to do it. There's something really delightful, something really beautiful about that to me. And uh, I, I think it's a fun, you know, at the end of the day, at least it gives me a little uh, something else to do. Uh, during the pandemic and evidently distract me uh, slightly too much from what I'm uh, actually supposed to be doing. So um, I just wanted to share that apropos of, of, of n- not much, uh, as it turns out, uh, speaking of useless information and, and uh, you know events that are not going to impact your life, but there you are. At any rate, my guest for today, uh, oh my God, she was I really enjoyed talking to her. My guest for today is Tanya Lerman. Uh, She is the Watkins University professor in the Stanford Anthropology Department. Her main uh, areas of specialty have been medical and psychological anthropology. Um, So her, uh, her most recent book is How God Becomes Real, which is, so this has been a longstanding interest of hers. How do people construct reality and belief and, and all this sort of stuff and, and how do people engage in the, the the act of belief and her perspective on that which we get into a lot in the in the conversation is so incredibly compelling uh, and then probably the the one that is of greatest interest to me personally is her book of two minds which is essentially an ethnography in American psychiatry so she is looking at you know sort of the uh, the, the lived perspective of what's actually happening on the ground in uh, American psychiatry and, uh, you know, just how, how uh, it, it kind of is all connected with, you know, how do we judge what is real for an individual, for the world and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, but anyway, I was, uh, you know, uh, very much interested in her work before this, but she's turned out to be such a fantastically interesting person. Uh, I loved her perspective and just the way she says things, the way she engages in her work. Um, she feels like a real deal, what you want your anthropology professor to be like. Uh, just so engaging, so worldly, so thoughtful, uh, so literary. And um, yeah, I just really enjoyed the conversation. I'm looking forward to sharing it with everyone. So without further ado, I give you Tanya How do you spend your day? So I know we're talking at 11 a.m. West Coast time right now. Do you have writing hours that you guard or what is that morning time that you really like to... I like to think of my morning time as my primary writing time. If I can get into the desk by, you know, in the morning, then I feel better throughout the day. So if I've actually done some writing, then I feel good. And so we tend to get up at around six, get the dogs out by out and back by, by eight. Um, We, you know, I try to get my email more or less under control by nine. I try to get down to 20 messages, although that doesn't always work. Um, and then I really try to keep nine to 12 for writing. It's not perfect. Uh, I love an unstructured day where I can just be at my desk and do what I do. Um, right now I'm trying to write a more um, literary account of hearing voices. And so I'm sort of into those chapters now that gets interspersed with other stuff. So this week, you know, we begin to teach next week. 
So this week I've got a kind of, this is my list. So I've got a list of, you know, the, the, the non-literary pieces that I owe people. And so, you know, on the, those are all, you know, um, I had two that, you know, so, so, so this week I'm taking time to try to get those out the door. And I'll probably fail, but I'll get through the list by the end of January. And then I'll have to decide, can I go back to the literary book? I mean, they're, they're all connected. So there's like the one that I'm working on today is a, it's a more structured empirical account, but it also is sort of the, the, the core of one of the chapters for the book. And so figuring out what I think is going on with the interview subjects is, was, you know, for the article will also help me frame the book. But the book is written differently. The book is written, you know, uh, trying to, to um, more give a feel, uh, allow the reader to experience the lives of the people who hear voices rather than saying, oh, you know, here's a sample of, you know, 92 people and we interviewed 22 of them and of this group, 58% said that they were, um, had primarily pleasurable experiences of their voices. You know, so, so that's, um, I like to, I, I sort of love COVID if I weren't worried that the world is falling apart and going to hell in a handbasket and it's never going to rain again in California and the trees are going to fall on the house. And if I weren't worried about that, you know, and I love my oaks, you know, you know, if I weren't worried about the state of the world, I would be loving this period where I can just don't have to travel. I can be at home. I can, I can get, I can write. Yeah. Uh, I'm just curious to dig a little bit deeper into the writing time. Do you, how much of that time is spent actually writing versus is re research? Uh, or do you find yourself at a place where it's like, well, lifetime of learning, and now I'm just sort of getting it out there at a you know quicker pace than I usually do? What is, what is the, how does that work out for you on balance right now? Well, um, I think that um, I've never been somebody who, I mean, I, I always read a whole bunch before I write. Um, but it's, I, I, I've never been somebody who has said, well, you know, it's just my perspective. So I'm just going to lay it out there. Uh, I, and that's why I'm an anthropologist. I go through people and through conversations and through other things. I had an editor who said to me at one point that there were two kinds of people. They were jugs of cream and balls of clay. And these jugs of cream were the people who they thought and they thought and they thought or whatever they did. And at some point they had something they were going to say and they just poured it out and there it was. And you could make some adjustments to it, but that's the way it was. And there are other people, she said, who are more like balls of clay. They produce the stuff, but they're always pulling pieces out of it and putting stuff on and reshaping and remaking. And with the first time the, they produce the ball, it has no relationship or not a strong relationship. It's still the same clay, but it changes a lot by the time they send the product up at the door. And I'm much more of that kind of writer. So I will, you know, I now have four or maybe actually, I guess I have five chapters, five and two half chapters of an 11 chapter book. And I fret about, you know, I make the rough draft. I have it, you know, or, or I do something and I feel good enough with those 20 pages to say, I have a chapter. But they change a lot. In the last book that came out, actually just came out, um, that was really a pulling together of things I thought about for a long time. And it's sort of harder in some sense to take things that you've written in a journal and then make those into a chapter. Um, you know, you sort of have, I think it's easier to actually to write it differently. Um, but it's, 
you know, I mean, Susan Sontag said that it took 17 drafts to get anywhere. And I am comfortable with that. I mean, I do a lot of rewriting, quite active and, you know, except sometimes it's also true that I'll listen to somebody, have a conversation with somebody. And, you know, what they say is just becomes the framing of the story. So that happened in a in one of the pieces, one of the chapters that I wrote. I had a conversation with somebody, and I um, and I had um, sort of there's a combination between finding the pers- the perfect interlocutor, who you know you the writer have some idea of what you want to say, and then you have a an, ex- an example, an exemplar, somebody who really says it for you in a way that enables you to say, here, this is something that's really important that the reader won't have thought about, but is, you know, it's like, kind of like somebody who finds Octopolis, you know, so, um, you know, that, that uh, what is his name? Peter Gordon, uh, Peter Godfrey Smith, maybe? Right, who, uh, Other Minds. Other uh, Minds. The cephalopod book. Yeah, so it's, you know, he has something he really wants to say about other minds. But it's carried in part by this amazing story he tells about finding this place where all these octopi swim about. And so as the writer, you know, you need the story that somebody else can reimagine and make into their own. And so sometimes when I find somebody who does that really well, then that is becomes very easy to write about. Other times you're finding somebody and it's, you know, you're sort of telling their story, but they, you know, it's, it's, it's not, you don't think that this particular story captures the, the experience of many, many people. So anyway, that's... Um, you're, you're always kind of going back and forth between, so this is what I think, you know, and of course you're changing what you're thinking a lot. You're growing as you do the research. And, um, and now I've done kind of a lot of it, sort of too much research. Uh, and you need to, so you have this um, intellectual story, this descriptive story of humans that needs to be carried at different points by particular humans um, who exemplify something that you think is really important. Yeah. Well, I, I could get lost in unpacking your writing process and your theory of storytelling and how you approach those stories all day, but I, I guess I do want to frame uh, this stuff and some of the other things that I want to talk about in terms of your own personal story. And so I mm-hmm. guess maybe we could start with, uh, could you tell me a little bit about where you, where you grew up? I grew up in Englewood, New Jersey. Used to this little suburb of New York. Anyone in New Jersey sort of prefers to be in a suburb in, associated with the big city. Um, and uh, daughter of a psychiatrist and, uh, and a novelist who didn't write that much, but did publish the occasional no- novel. Um, and three sisters, two, two, three daughters, two sisters. Uh, one of them actually kind of a famous children's book author, uh, for wrote a book on Lama Lama Red Pajama for the toddler set. Classic text uh, on the Lama Lama Red Pajama front. Yeah. Yeah. Classic text. Yeah. Um, and I grew up when I was young, I thought I was going to be a naturalist. I was just going to watch, you know, creatures. I was particularly fascinated by wolves, by communications between groups of non-language speaking creatures. And also fascinated by sow bugs for some reason. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, that's me. So that's, that's interesting. So um, psychiatrist is a parent. And there were also, uh, I you know, I read this in a, a bio somewhere that there was 
religious. I can't remember who it was, but you had people in your life who were religious. And it's interesting yes. that those are two of the big themes that you've dealt with later on in 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 your work. Do you think that, that those were things you were already attuned to in a quasi-anthropological way at the time and as a child, or did that come much later on? Oh, I think that that made me into an anthropologist. So the, the story here was that my uh, mother's father was a very conservative Christian pastor, New England pastor, but a Baptist pastor. And my, my mother's sisters were very conservative Christians. So one of my mother's sisters was sort of a prototypical, um, stereotypical evangelical. I mean, after a while, she and her husband and her kids got an RV. They went down to Texas. They would go to a big church. They had the political views you might associate with with um, those kinds of um, conservative faiths. And my mother was very different. Um, and, you know, and, but my mother found it really hard to give up on God. I mean, she had um, really strayed away from her father's perspective. Um, I mean, she told me about having her mother, her, her parents had been missionaries in Burma and her father loved it. This is the pastor because he loved like being a dentist in the jungle and riding elephants. And he loved being a teacher. That was great. And her mother, my mother's mother, really kind of thought that the Burmese were going to go to hell if they didn't come to Jesus. And my mother thought that was insane. Uh, I mean, not technically insane. She just thought it was fundamentally morally wrong. But she loved going to church. She loved going singing in the church choir. And so she was really not willing to give up on church, even though she struggled with the idea of God throughout her life, loved Sam Harris, you know, loved these books on atheism and how, and all the, the devastation wrought by these religious commitments, but she kept going to church. My father, um, who really met my mother and bonded over the failure of the church to be um, sensible, um, my father grew up as the son of a Christian scientist. His um, so his father and his and so so his father and his mother um, would go to a church that insisted that um, you should not seek medical care. That if you were fully spiritually committed, you would never encounter death. You would surmount all the obstacles in your life. And my father um, was quite involved with the church when he was young, and then he became a doctor. And so, you know, his, his father sort of was always sort of confused about what was going on in New York, you know, where my father was in medical school. And I, that was part of my experience. And I was also, by the time I was in second grade, we'd moved to the suburbs of New York, moved out of the city. And we moved to an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. So my parents are not Jewish, but uh, but I but that was my social world. I was what is sometimes described as a Shabbos goy for some, you know, there was a house, the house behind behind ours, you know, and I'd go over for dinner on Friday night and I'd turn on and off the electric disposal and the lights and, and they were it was great. Um and I could tell that there that this family thought about God very differently from my mother. And my mother, in some sense, didn't believe. I mean, so here in this Orthodox community, is perfectly. It does not disrupt your relationship with God. So God says you must not use electricity on the Sabbath, but it doesn't disrupt your relationship with God to have a little Gentile girl come along and in, you know, turn on and off the electricity. And from my mother's perspective, that was just wrong. I mean, she, obviously it wasn't wrong because she didn't believe that anything was being broken or violated or didn't really even believe in this God that all these regulations were around. And yet I was aware of how there being a kind of an, a there there, something to think about. And I was aware that, you know, we would have these big 
family Thanksgivings or Christmas events or something. And everybody's using these, everybody's praying. And there are very different commitments to what those words meant. And I didn't, I, I couldn't have laid that out articulately when I was eight, but I had the sense. I actually, that the, I, be, I bet that you could. I, I, <laughs> well, that's very sweet, but I, I don't know. I, 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 I you for 25 I did, minutes. I think you could have. <laughs> and yeah, and meanwhile, my dad was like, you know, there were clearly people who were healthy and people who were not healthy. And, you know, and that was different. And that was fascinating. And, uh, and I, you know, we'd have these conversations over the dinner table about somebody who had thrown something at my dad or had, you know, behaved in a way that was really, you know, irrational. And so there is this category that was there and, you know, but it's, it's um, these categories are both very stable in psychiatry. There's a real sense, you know, when somebody is ill, they're really obviously ill. And yet there's also always a puzzle about their illness. Um, and there's this, all this gray zone between well and not well. And so I was also conscious of those things as well. And when I arrived in college, in high school and college, after I'd kind of gone through my naturalist phase, I was really fascinated by philosophy and uh, found myself sort of intrigued by the philosophy of knowledge, how people came to know things about the world. I found myself, you know, just like, absorbed by and horrified by Kant, who sort of talked about the way our how we have categories that structure our understanding of the world, but Kant just made them up as far as I could tell. And then, you know, Piaget, well, he seemed to be using empirical understanding to, under to explain where those categories came from. And so, um, but then I ended up immersed with people rather than in the domain, rather than thinking, I mean, cognitive science wasn't really a thing when I was an undergraduate. It was, it was emerging as a thing, but I didn't really know about it. And, um, and so I ended up in anthropology and with a psychological bent, trying to think about, you know, how people made choices, how they came to think about what reality is, that kind of thing. Yeah, and that okay. So that's the sort of informal, you know, precursor to to you know what what you're to become an anthropologist. When did that begin to to crystallize into an academic trajectory? You know, perhaps uh, you know Cambridge or or something like that. When did when did that start to take more of an identifiable professional shape? So in Cambridge. I ended up reading a lot of Wittgenstein and Kripke and Quine and Putnam. It's been a long time, but that was sort of my, our, our social group um, would read these sort of analytic philosophers. And somehow it was a sort of a thing in Cambridge. I mean, it's so different now. I mean, if now if I'd gone to a graduate school, people, maybe not in Cambridge, but it but in the U.S., you'd be I'd, you'd be up to your eyeballs in Foucault and Derrida, and whatever. Um, more Foucault these days, um, Agamben. Um, but that was not the conversation. So the conversation in Cambridge was about Evans Pritchard and how things became real. You know, how did you know about you know was it rational to believe in witchcraft? Was a very active conversation when I was a graduate student and Robin Horton was sort of a friend of the department. I don't know if you know who that is, but wrote a kind of famous paper about um, how to think about beliefs about witchcraft. And I had already um, become quite fascinated by modern witchcraft. So I'd somehow, when I, I'd taken a class by somebody who had come from Cambridge, Stanley Tambayo, who had um, written about, had his whole view about magic. And, you know, magic was different from rational science. And, um, and basically he just described the difference between the two of them. 
And I, and, and, and it seemed to me that in the history of anthropology, there were, you know, how did you deal with magic? Well, there were really two kinds of explanations. One is that people practicing magic or religion or this so-called, you know, this, this stuff that didn't quite make sense. They either did that because they didn't have a scientific perspective or because they didn't really believe in it. And it, and that was just um, made sense. Uh, and people had talked about this from very different perspectives. I mean, one of the books that was much discussed in my world was a book by Dan Sperber about symbolism in which he talked about the difference, you know, when, when, when you're, you're, Field subjects, they go to the field and plant. That's not surprising to you. But when they put a pat of butter on their on their foreheads and dance around in a circle, that's when anthropologists pay attention. Um, and so I'd come across this book that told you how to be a witch that was written by a woman who seemed to live in Berkeley and was clearly, you know, pretty sophisticated and pretty much an invitation to engage in these practices. And it seemed hard to entirely dismiss it um, and hard to explain it as being proto-scientific. And so that's when I began to think that it would be a reasonable thing to do to turn these practices into my dissertation project and uh, to try to gra grapple with those questions. So this was at the far end of the rationality debate and this, you know, and the rationality debate was basically upended by cognitive science. Although, again, I had only the dimmest understandings of this at the time. Um, but there were, you know, people would, you know, there were three or four collections of essays, quite widely read, in which the question was, is it rational to believe in witchcraft? And then is it rational to believe in God? And how did you think about these things? And the model for belief tended to be um, uh, Ayer's uh, propositional commitment. So, you know, the sense is that, that there are people have this, this statement of the world in which the magic is true or God is real. And, um, and then that this predicts their behavior. And that just seemed to be wrong or seemed to me to be wrong, or did not to be fully capture um, people's experiences. And so that's been what I've been wrestling with ever since. I mean, you could say what I've added to those questions is not only many people have written about the nature of these cognitive commitments, but also um, I have a much richer what you might call a phenomenological sense of the way people are engaged with ideas within that are that a psychiatrist might be interested in the domain of psychosis and dissociation and um and you can't have a much richer feel for what you might call the bodily dimensions of some of these experiences and so now i'm trying to weave my way through the welter of these different ideas. Yeah. So here, here's something I'm curious to get your take on, which I think is kind of at the intersection of, um, you know, writing and philosophy and the process of anthropology. And so uh, your book of two minds won the Victor Turner prize for writing mm -hmm. and ethnography. Uh, mm -hmm. You are by, you know, all standards, I think, of a fantastic writer. And so he seems qualified as anyone to, to sort of make this judgment. What do you think makes a good ethnography? Uh, and then particularly, you know, framing that question, I guess, around Gertz's idea of, you know, ethnography is something closer to literary criticism rather than scientific exposition. Uh, curious to hear your yeah. Your perspective on what that looks like. I mean, I love Clifford Gertz, but I don't no longer think of ethnography as a kind of literary criticism. I think of it as, I mean, I think that the anthropologist is better off if they have a sense of a problem or a puzzle, which their research can speak to and help to solve. But the ethnography, uh, so the ethnography is doing two things. It it's, it's start, should start with a question. Um, 
uh, that intellectually, you know, you're trying to make sense of, trying to understand how can these people believe in magic? Do they believe in magic? Um, how does God, what does it mean for God to, you know, if somebody says that God is talking to them, what is that? You know, is that, the, if, and if we don't have, we don't start with the idea that there is a supernatural being that talks in some um, problematic way, how do we make sense of this as a, as a, as a puzzle? And, then, and the good ethnography then has a sense of, well, this question that I have is embedded in a conversation that people have had around these questions. But an ethnography is also um, trying to tell the story of a group of people with a question in mind so that a reader has um, a sort of a sort of a vivid sense of that world and can be persuaded that, that this, this world, you know, represents to some extent something that's really happening. So, you know, you want to make sure that your, your, your ethnography, um, you know, you, you, you can get to know well a kind of small group of people that tell their story well. So you need to be able to persuade the reader that the, this group of 20 people matters. They are, this is the way a lot of psychiatrists go through their training. These are the puzzle, these are the basic questions that young psychiatrists have to engage with. These, this is the basic challenge that, you know, if you're gonna give a diagnosis, this is the way that you have to think and observe in order to do that. So you've got to take this small group and, and the ethnographer has to say, well, this represents something bigger. And you have to do it in a way that's not just asserting that but persuades your readership that that's true. And then I think of the good ethnography as giving kind of an anatomy of the story that you're telling. So, you know, you think, and this is always what I'm struggling with when I'm writing. I want to say, if I'm going to persuade my reader that the way that I see the world is important, has something to contribute to my reader's understanding, my field's understanding, whatever, then I have to plausibly ask, what are the 12 things I want to communicate? What are, you know, I spent a year in this place two years, what do I, what did I see that's now like the, and the thing that makes this challenging is that it becomes the kind of the, the water the fish is swimming in. You know, you have to remember what surprised you at the beginning of your field work. And you have to say, if I'm gonna understand this, what are the pieces of it that I need to convey? And then you have to organize that so that it sounds like a, seamless, smooth, unpack, you know, it seems to be you start the book at the beginning and you read through to the end and it all makes sense that it, that it, all these pieces are there. Um, so you, the ethnographer, have to figure out what's important to tell. And that, and that's a challenge. You know, one of, um, and there are many different kinds of good ethnographies. I mean, my favorites are, you know, the Evans Pritchard, Witchcraft Oracles and Magic, Jean Briggs's Never in Anger, which is this uh, story of um, the use of emotions and among the Inuit basic argument is that you try to live in an igloo, you can, your social world cannot afford anger. And so people manage it differently. Um, but she tells that so, but of course, she, she points out that people get angry. And so how do they manage that? Um, the, uh, you know, you need to, the more a, a writer, I mean, Gertz was unusually good at seeing the way he pulled the puppet strings. And so people read him more for his account of how to write and what's important than they read him for his ethnography these days. But um, the good ethnographer, you know, tries to really 
unpack or, you know, figures out how to pull the strings and then does the shadow play. You know, to be honest, I'm not even sure that Clifford Gertz knew what an ethnography was. If you look at his um, works and lives, um, uh, I can't remember the for people that he he looked at there, but, you know, it's like Tristro Peak was like one of his, um, uh, you know, quintessential ethnographies, which is like the least represented. If you were going to choose like a, a... and so, yes, it was this uh, it, it literary enterprise that I'm not sure that that's who I would go to if I wanted to know, um, uh, you know, what, how to tell the story of a particular uh, uh, people. So, yeah, that's, that, um, I, I really like your, your um, perspective on it. It seems a lot more moderated. It seems okay. scientific, uh, goal, uh, you know, goal-directed. Uh, and taking the elements uh, that, you know, add some of that Gertzian flair of, of storytelling and, and um, you know, maybe apostrophe, maybe sort of meta, you know, here's, mm-hmm. here's, here's how I am telling the story, just to be, you know, upfront about that. Um, but then also actually really uh, making sure that the thing you are trying to convey is, um, you know, getting as close as you can to, you know, conveying this 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 world that you're trying to to share with your reader um that i really i really like the way you you put all that thank you um you mentioned a couple of your favorite ethnographies i'm curious if there are any others you want to add to that list or or ones that you know maybe most influenced your um your thinking or or that you you've really loved Um, and then other books maybe outside of anthropology that uh, you love or have done the most to impact your thinking? Uh, you know, a handful on, uh, on either side. I'd, I'd just love to hear some of your favorites. Yeah, I guess, um, I mean, I do love Levi-Strauss. And so Levi-Strauss was one of the, my roots into anthropology. Um, and so Tristra Peak was, was among them, but also the Elementary Structures of Kinship, which is a brilliant book. And particularly as, I think it's chapter seven, which he ca- you know, casts out a theory of the mind that I think is amazing. Um, other, I mean, there's so many wonderful ethnographies. Um, Godfrey Leinhardt's Divinity and Experience comes to mind. Um, to me, a very thoughtful account of how people experience faith. Um, outside of eth- ethnography, one of the impactful books on my life was this mad book by Julian Jaynes on the break- origin of consciousness and the breakdown of the bicameral mind. And that book has really been a kind of guide to thinking about important questions for me. Uh, not because of his model of the brain, which, you know, I don't, as there's some neuroscientists actually support this idea of a kind of a brain, sort of two halves of the brain that have to communicate and can be shown to communicate differently and or in a, in a flawed way and under certain circumstances. But it's the idea that if you think differently about the mind, you experience your senses differently is really interesting to me. And that's really a, a push in my own recent work. I think that the, the models of the mind do fundamentally affect the way that we experience our senses and the way that we experience thoughts. And, um, it's, and that is just an extraordinarily well-written book. It's um, eloquent, beautiful. Um, in one of the books that made a big difference to me when I was young was uh, Nico Tinbergen's Curious Naturalists. And he just sort of tried to, to use these little um, experiments, you know, to figure out how gulls might navigate their way back or to, to their home, uh, figured out how malls na- oriented their, their way in the world. Um, yeah. My favorite current book is the, you know, I, I, I have to say that Hilary Mantle has had a big role in my life in the last three or four years. I, I think that um, I spent a lot of time in the garden listening and re-listening to her books on Thomas Cromwell. Hmm. Yeah. 
Um, and then uh, any fiction uh, that speaks to you? Is that is that a big part of your, I don't know, in, intellectual life as a reader, uh, even though it's a little further afield? From, from oh yeah, I mean, I, I, there are times when I'm more or less absorbed by fiction. Um, I uh, th that's one of the virtues of COVID is that I've started reading again, and so I just uh, read this this very engaging book by Lily King called Writers and Lovers, which is being read by very many people right now. Um, for good reasons. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a vivid account of someone's relationship to telling a story. And it's about the anxiety that you're not telling the story well and the excitement about realizing that the story really works and you know what it's like to have your home be in a text rather than in the things where many people find their home. And uh, I thought that was pretty great. Um, just read Yag Yassi's Transcendence, which is kind of fantastic. It's, it's also sort of wonderful because she, one of the chapters begins with one of my articles, which is very cool. But um, it's a story about a, a woman who um, struggles with faith. Um, I mean, the, the work of mine that she, she draws from is actually about hearing voices in different countries. Um, the story that she tells is a woman who is a scientist but grew up in a very uh, faith-centric Ghanaian world and cannot bring herself to, uh, to adopt, the, to, to still be within the faith, and yet finds that she knows that this faith is intensely satisfying. So she feels the pull of it. She can't believe in it. And it's, I just find that meditation very moving. The other person I should mention is somebody who is a, was a fiction writer, but also more famously sort of an essayist, and that's E.B. White. So E.B. White is best known as the author of Charlotte's Web. Um, but he was- Depends on how much of a writing nerd you are. <laughs> well, so yeah, so he, but he's an amazing <laughs> writer. He's just an yeah. amazing writer. So he basically created the tone of the New Yorker. So he joined the, the staff pretty much at the start. He became the sort of one of the lead authors in Talk of the Town. And his essays are just fantastic. And he's, you know, there's an essay called Once More to the Light to, to the Lake. That's just a um, you know, it's a meditation on time. And it's about a father who takes his son off to a beloved vacation spot and becomes confused about who is the father and who is the son and whether he is his son and whether he has become then by extension, you know, whether he's really in his son's clothes and whether that means that the person in his clothes is really his father. And he manages, I mean, E.B. White is famous for this little, um, kind of spin at the end of the, at the end of the essay this little twist that kind of sticks in your heart and your guts. And he just does this brilliantly in that essay. And, uh, and I just love the way he uses language. It's so clean, it's so, I mean, it's funny because it's actually encrusted with all of these details from a saltwater main farm. But he, um, he, he really, exemplifies the strunk and white view that, you know, you should let every word tell. You should, um, you know, omit needless words is one of their dicta that I kind of use when I'm, when I'm at my desk. Like I'm always trying to omit needless words and, uh, and to make the sentences sing the way he did. Beautiful. I want to spend the last uh, little bit here getting back to, to some of your work. And yeah. one thing that I'm, I'm curious to know about is, you know, maybe this is, this is too flippant, but it's, you kind of think of your career as an exercise in framing um, mm -hmm. because, you know, the anthropology of mind, you know, you walk into a room of anthropologists and say, you know, listen up, y'all. 
I'm going to tell you about the mind and then, you know, they're enthralled and there's all these, you know, things and, you know, walking into a, a room of a cognitive scientist that promise, you know, it's, it's a different promise. It's, it's harder to fulfill mm. in a kind of way. Um, yeah. and, and a lot of your, uh, you know, work has straddled that, um, you know, anthropology and mind, uh, divide. So I guess I'm curious, what do you make of that? And specifically with an eye of, of what psychologists and anthropologists can learn from each other, uh, which I know is something you recently wrote a paper on. So it's a great question. I mean, I, I think I began to do more psychological work because I wanted to know whether my anthropological intuitions could be supported in other ways as well, particularly because I'm interested in the, these sort of what can feel like misty questions, how the how we kind of experience the quality of our thoughts, what our thoughts can do, um, whether an outside speaker can speak into our thoughts, you know, in an immaterial, like whether a God can speak into our thoughts, how would, how would you know? And so I have found the clarity of psychologists and philosophers helpful in um, helping me to ask questions and to feel more confident. I mean, I think what you know as an anthropologist, you know things because you spend such a long period of time with people. And then you can, but you always fret or I always worry about how much of what I think I know is because I want to know it. And so I find psychologists to be helpful because they show me techniques of how to think clearly about whether, you know, my biases are um, altering what I think is true. But by the same token, sometimes I see a, you know, a psychological study. So right now I'm writing a paper um, about people who hear voices. And these are people who have what's called no need for care. So there are people who aren't, don't seem to be ill, but they seem to have this experience of hearing a voice. And, you know, and the, so the question is, are these people who are just like people with psychosis, but they figure out how to manage their experience or something else going on? And one of the things I can see is that the psychological instruments that people will use will sometimes they can also give the wrong answers in that, you know, people can sometimes answer those questions in ways that are maybe not in accord with the intent with which the question was asked. So, um, and it turns out this is a really hard problem to think about the relationship between people who have frequent experiences of spirits talking to them and psychosis and where you draw the line and are these the same phenomena or are they not? But I'm struck that the richness of uh, interaction can, that an anthropologist brings can shed a helpful light on some of these psychological um, techniques. And the psychological techniques can help the anthropologist uh, feel more confident about what he or she sees. And so I have found it really liberating to use different techniques. And the reason for that is that I think this is, and this I would pin on Clifford Gertz. And as much as I love him, you know, Clifford Gertz gave you know, my generation the sense that if you were going to write an ethnography, you had to write something perfect that was going to, it was just going to be the book on Morocco. It was going to be the, you know, it was going to be the text that summarized everything. And it was going to, of course, it was a reflection of you were standing over the shoulders of people trying to understand themselves. But, you you know, it was going to be this, this perfect, you know, um, work of art. And, you know, it's really easy to fall short of that ideal. But, you know, in the, in the psychology land, nobody ever thinks that they have the final explanation of anything. Um, they have one paper and they make an argument and then another paper comes along and they're all working on the same problem 
And so there's a sense that, oh, if you can make a step forward on this problem, you really accomplish something. And it's a heck of a lot easier to do that. Then, you know, from a Gerstein perspective, this is too bold and not fair, but if Gertz is your icon, your, 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 your vision of who you want to be, all he does is to invite you to think about the ways you're falling short. If your model is more like an Evans Pritchard who did was trying to puzzle things through, was that like, then you have like, oh, I have really contributed to this conversation. Maybe we're getting someplace. And that's a much more uplifting way to think about what you can do and you know what your next step is. And because all you do is like everything time you do something, you've got another puzzle to solve. So that's your next paper or your next project. And then it's like, you know, then 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 as soon as I started thinking about problems to solve and puzzles to unravel. I, I know that's not the right metaphor, problems to, to, to explore and puzzles to solve. Then like my academic, intellectually, I just felt so much more open, felt I had so many more things I could do. And it was kind of wonderful. That's, that's really interesting to me, I think for, for two reasons. Uh, one, that explains a lot of where my personal anxiety comes from, given how much I love Clifford Gertz. Maybe, maybe you just summed it all up right there. Um, number two, though, is that, and this is a total side note, is that it's, I think it's, that's something interesting for me to think about because uh, it actually relates to my um, project that I'm trying to do for my dissertation, which I call the intuitive anthropologist. And so cool. in, in, um, in psychology, we have this concept, the intuitive psychologist. This is, you know, this theory of mind, empathetic, you know, mode that people can engage in uh, to understand the mental states of other individuals. And I think if you look at the way, um, you know, psychology has worked with um, sort of glossing over important cultural differences in the way people think, relying Mm -hmm. uh, on our weird, Western educated, industrialized, rich democratic um, uh, samples of populations. We've discounted a lot of the things that anthropologists have taken seriously um, with varying levels of success um, throughout, you know, the, the um, discipline's history. And so what happens if we, if we take the way, we psychologists take the way anthropologists think seriously and try and find evidence of that for how people understand the minds of people who come from dramatically different Social, cultural, religious, moral, etc. backgrounds in oneself. I think that's a super interesting problem. Paul Harris has also takes that perspective, and he provides one answer. I think there might be others as well, but this is this book called, you know, trust, trust in testimony. What's it called? Um, trust, trust in testimony, trust and testimony. So it's his most recent book in somewhere, and it's someplace else. But it's, um, and he says, you know, Alison Gopnik thinks that the young child is a scientist. And he says, no, no, no. Young child is really an anthropologist. And, you know, and and so what he said for him, that means that the child is listening to the way other people talk Mm. and what they do. Mm. So I think that's really interesting. I think that's great. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's. That that sounds. I'll have to. Inve- I'm not familiar with that, and I'll have to investigate that. But but yeah, I think psychologists tend to discount. Um, you know, there's this famous book by um, Richard Nisbet and Lee Ross called "The Person in the Situation." I think that hmm. really sums up the the way psychologists think about the the world of people is that you have persons and you have situations, and you can mm-hmm. toggle different aspects of them, um, uh, and then you get all your interesting psychological phenomena. And what the anthropologist recognizes at a much deeper level than the psychologist is that, no, 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 there's actually this other thing which turned out to be much larger. And that's that's a worldview. That is a yeah. conception of existence and morality and reality uh, that is that transcends, uh, you know, the situation and yeah. is a much larger circle of, you know, of 
tweak the, the you know, much larger sway mm-hmm. of human behavior. Anyway, um, I think that's what we sort of discount. And I, I want to sort of build that back into that question of how do we understand other people's minds? Um, that's great. Have anyway, you written about that yet? Uh, and I'm still working on it. It's still early, okay. early phases. Um, let's see, we're, we're right at our deadline here. Should we call it here and, and move on with our lives? Or, or uh, do you have time for one more question? One more question is fine. Great. Do you want to talk about the book that just came out? Or do you want to talk about the book that you're working on now? That was not, hopefully um, not, that was not the question. That was the precursor to the question, to decide the question. Um, let's talk about the book that just came out. Yeah. Okay. So how God becomes real. I, my, so the premise of it is that, you know, you have the conventional wisdom maybe would be that, you know, the first act of religious faith is believing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we believe that God exists, therefore we worship him, uh, her, you know, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. your book sort of flips that, um, you know, the belief is not the first act. We believe in God because we worship him, I think is how you, you phrase it. Uh, and you know, why else would we need to spend all that time engaged in worshipful activities, such as prayer and dancing and singing and this and that, uh, if we were always and easily connected to the presence of God. So uh, that's my sort of understanding of the the, the premise, um, and 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 how, how how you begin to structure that book. So maybe can you, if that's correct, can you say a little bit more about how you develop different aspects of, of that argument and that idea? So it's so I do start with a practice centered perspective, and I see um, it's I just saw that people don't behave as if they believe in God the way they believe in tables and chairs. That to some extent, God is always a secondary frame. Um, that, uh, it, And this is something that's very salient to people of faith, that they want to be more Christian and they go to church and they, they forget to be Christian. They forget to pay attention to God. And you know, nobody asks God to feed their dog or to write their paper. There's something about that that's kind of second- and so the question is, how does that become close? How do people make that close? And I was struck by that because of this observation that people really seek to have a interactive, vivid experience of a person like God. And I saw that some people were more able to do that than others. And so in the book, I sort of set out what I think I see, um, which is that there are certain ways of structuring um, a, say, the narratives around God, that gods or spirits that make God more accessible, that if there's a, if the ideas about the spirits become a kind of shared paracosm, a shared intensely personal imagine, imagined world, not claiming that it's imaginary, it's helpful, that practicing to people who are able to get absorbed in their inner world um, are more able to develop these these relationships with spirits. People who practice having that inner world feel more vivid are able to become more intimately involved with spirits. People who have a model of the mind in which the mind is not out there, a citadel on the hill, the ways that Charles Taylor tends to describe our minds, but somehow more open to the world, are more able to have that vivid experience. And also people who are able, because of these predispositions or because of these practices, people who are able to have a sensory experience of God makes a big difference. And there's something to be said of people who are able to sense God's presence, hear God's voice, see the wing of an angel. God comes to feel more real to them because it's a kind of evidential reality to this God. And what I try to show is that what's striking about these practices is that they change people because they, in effect, put people in relationship with the being. And then people change because they're in that relationship. And that the, what I was so struck by was that the relationship changes people kind of the way that any human relationship changes people. I mean, that's not perfect, but it's striking that there is a relational dimension of faith experience, which is transformative. 
Um, I also talk about the way that they, these practices change the experience of mind in this practice we call prayer, but that's probably it's probably enough to be going on with. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, um, gosh, your entire body of work is so beautifully connected and, uh, uh, you know, beautifully rendered in your prose and... I think describes this really, even you know, even though you've mentioned other people who have you know studied anthropology of, of religion and, and those kinds of experiences, it's just uh, the way you have patched work these different aspects of um, you know how I guess how our world becomes real um, together. It's it's really inspiring. So thank you for for your work and for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Good luck to you. And send me what, when, when you write up something about the Lee and Nisbeth book and the way anthropology is different, send it to me. I'd love Thanks. to be able to see it. Yeah, we'll do. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll let you know when uh, this episode goes live. Okay. okay. Cool. Take care. Bye-bye, Cody. Thanks, Tanya. Bye. That was my conversation with Tanya Lerman. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, you can subscribe to Cognitive Evolution through whichever platform you may be listening through. You can follow me on Twitter at Cody Commerce. You can also subscribe to my newsletter, uh, codycommerce.com slash newsletter. So uh, thank you for listening. I really appreciate it. And I'll be back here again next week with another episode of Cognitive Revolution.